It's Tuesday, September 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump's next move in the Supreme Court fight will come at the end of the week as he seeks to nominate someone to take over for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Republicans have said they will take up the nomination, even though the actual vote may take place in the lame duck session after the election. Fidel Alassane, reporter at Axios, joins us for the political fight to replace the notorious RBG. Next, the Justice Department has released a list of cities deemed anarchist jurisdictions that are marked for review and threatened with withholding federal grant money. New York City, Portland, and Seattle are all on the list for voting to cut police funding, not prosecuting protesters, and the rejection of federal intervention. Alan Smith, political reporter at NBC News, joins us for more. Finally, a big thank you to my colleague, Mo Kelly, for filling in for me while I was on vacation. He did a wonderful job, and we have one more story from him. Have you noticed that your trash has expanded along with your waistline with all that ordering in you've been doing during the pandemic? Tom Sitsema, food critic at The Washington Post, joins us with tips on minimizing your trash pileup from all those takeout containers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I would say on Friday or Saturday, I'll be announcing the pick. Uh, it's uh, five women are being looked at and vetted very carefully. Joining us now is Fidel Alassan, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Fidel. Thanks for having me. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on Friday. She was 87. She died of pancreatic cancer, something she had been battling for some time. And immediately when her death was announced, right away the fight to see who would replace her on the Supreme Court began. This is something that people had kind of been expecting for some time. But I mean, right away, everything went haywire. The Republicans saying that they would vote on a nominee that President Trump put forth. Democrats saying they want to wait until after the election, the same way they did to President Obama in 2016. So everything is all over the place. Fidel, tell us a little bit about what the process would be like, because constitutionally, the Republicans can put forth a nominee and they can vote on it all before Election Day. Sure. The Constitution doesn't necessarily outline the rules of the Senate or what the Senate has to follow. So what is really at question here is the precedent that Mitch McConnell said in 2016 when President Obama had a vacancy in the Supreme Court with nine months to go. And he said that because the election was so close that voters should get a choice. And Democrats are trying to apply that same principle here, but Republicans want to go through and hold the vote. Now, there's the question of whether they will have the actual vote before the election or whether they'll just have hearings before the election and then have the November election and then have the vote in the lame duck period between the election and when the new Congress and new president or President Trump reelected would be inaugurated in January. But the president just has to put forth a nomination and the Senate can kind of get the ball rolling on that front. So even then, that's what Democrats are worried about. President Trump was on Fox and Friends on Monday and said that he plans to announce his pick to replace her either Friday or Saturday. He wanted to wait for some of her public viewing in, uh, in front of the Supreme Court on Wednesday and Thursday. There's going to be another ceremony on Friday and then she'll be buried next week in Arlington National Cemetery in a private service. So President Trump said he wanted to wait for a little bit of that, but he says he might have a pick 
ready to go by the end of the week. We know there's like two front runners, but I think he said he has about four people in total that he's thinking about. Right. But we know that the two front runners, Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa, we know at least Amy Coney Barrett is someone who has been on his mind for a long time, even going back to 2018 when there was a vacancy from the Anthony Kennedy seat. So it may be that Trump has her ready to go right now. It may be that she's not the choice at all. But as we know, with Trump, you never know until, you know, sometimes you get the spectacle of naming the choice like we did previously, and you never know until he finally makes that decision. Yeah, and the other choice is Barbara Lagoa. Uh, She's from Florida right now, or where she's practicing right now is in Florida. And uh, a lot of people are saying, well, she could be a good choice there because she was just recently confirmed 80 to 15. So a lot of Democrats did vote for her then. And it's a critical battleground state for the president. So Judge Lagoa could also be a good pick there. As you said, she's already gone through the confirmation process for the circuit seat she currently holds down south. So Democrats would probably say the circumstances have obviously changed. This is not only a different seat, but like I said before, they're going from that president that Mitch McConnell said that it's an election year, so there shouldn't be a choice. But there's politics at play to this, too. So just because someone has been confirmed by the Senate already, the circumstances are very, very different for Amy Coney Barrett, even though she is viewed as the easier person to confirm, because there's a lot less controversy, I think, with her than Amy Coney Barrett, who is further to the right. An open seat on the Supreme Court is always a huge deal but this time around could be more consequential. We're always kind of in this 5-4 hovering around that kind of divide right there. But if uh, the Republicans got a nominee and were able to vote them through, this would be a huge shift for the court. It would be a huge shift in a very short period of time. President Trump, he would be the first president to have three Supreme Court picks since Ronald Reagan. And even Ronald Reagan did that over two terms. So this would shift the court further to the right in a very quick amount of time. And that's what makes it even more contentious because Democrats are signaling that their reaction to what Republicans do, we could see a court packing scheme. That's something that Representative Joe Kennedy tweeted. So this is something that's always contentious and Supreme Court, the the votes in the Senate to confirm Supreme Court justices has gotten closer and closer over the years. And even the last several choices, it's been very contentious. It's been very close votes. This is probably the most contentious Supreme Court nomination that we'll have in a long time or that we've had in a, in a while also. Fidel Alassane, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. This is just another one of President Trump's games. It's thoroughly political. It's part of his campaign strategy. It makes no sense. It has not, it's not based in the facts in the least. It's insulting to the people of New York City. And his effort to withhold our funding is unconstitutional. Joining us now is Alan Smith, political reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Alan. Hey, thanks for having me on, Oscar wanted to talk about what's going on with the Department of Justice right now. They labeled three cities, New York City, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, as anarchist jurisdictions. 
earlier in the month, President Trump had signed a memo saying that he wanted the Department of Justice to identify jurisdictions like this so that they can maybe do something with federal funding, withhold federal funds, things like that. And now we have these first three at least, and uh, more cities could be coming. Alan, tell us a little bit about what the Justice Department did on Monday. So the Justice Department really went out and fulfilled its part of the mandate from really President Trump's instructions earlier this month to various parts of the administration to seek out and determine what it described as anarchist jurisdiction. Now, from the end of this, that Attorney General William Barr on was actually pretty open-ended because part of those instructions included that Barr basically could take anything happening in a place and use it as part of justification to label a jurisdiction an anarchist jurisdiction. Now, obviously, this is a significant escalation of the president's uh, rhetoric that's been aimed at states and cities that are under democratic control. It's an element that we've kind of seen out of the president's playbook a few times, which is, you know, to threaten to withhold funding in exchange for something in this case, though, that's not necessarily clear. I know that from Attorney General Barr's memo on this, for instance, in New York, he had cited the city council voting to decrease funding for police and local district attorneys declining to prosecute charges stemming from the protests, such as disorderly conduct or unlawful assembly. And it was a different justification for each of the districts, although there was some similar overlap. So it's uh, an escalation. And some of these cities have already kind of fired back at the president. And I know that the attorney general in New York has already threatened legal action should the administration actually move forward with the withholding of any funding from that state. We've already seen a bunch of protests out of Oregon. And as you mentioned, kind of the justifications for these being labeled anarchist jurisdictions kind of can vary. They're looking at a lot of things, as I mentioned, the protests, defunding police departments, which uh, New York did. I think they took out uh, about a billion dollars out of the police department there, things like that. So they're looking for different justifications for all of this. Now, beyond that, these funds comprise a lot of what these states and cities come to count on. Uh, what kind of funds specifically are they looking at taking back? And then beyond that, these funds are approved by Congress. So it's not like the president can just take some of that stuff away. Exactly. So on your last point, that's going to be a point that's brought up. If these funds are, in fact, held up or taken away, that's the point that's going to be made in court. You know, the executive branch doesn't have the unilateral ability to decide to withhold federal funds that have been appropriated by Congress. Now, it's unclear exactly what funds would be withheld from these cities, but a Trump administration official did say earlier this month that it would be involving some sort of grant money, likely grants that are made to law enforcement. This official had said that the money's not being used. Why continue to give it? Why not instead give that money elsewhere where it will be put to better use? Now, Already, you know, the New York attorney general has said that's essentially evidence that it's the Trump administration and not her state that is seeking to defund police by withholding funds that, in theory, would be going toward law enforcement purposes. Right. I mean, the fight on this is just going to be going back and forth. And one of the bigger questions, too, is, well, how do you get off of this list? Let's say I know the president has said that a lot of these places have rejected federal intervention, having federal officers come in and kind of maintain order, law and order, as the president likes to say. So what's the answer? They say yes to that. There's still going to be a lot of protests. Maybe things calm down. That's what gets them off the list. You know, there's a lot of big questions still floating around on this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least as of now, it's not entirely clear how a city that gets on that list is going to be able to get off. Something that I find interesting is that when you look at the protest situation in New York and you compare it to a place such as Portland, where protests have been pretty rowdy and going on for, at this point, I believe, you know, more than 100 days straight after the death of George Floyd, it's not exactly a, a comparable situation. I mean, being on the ground here in New York City, you are seeing a very different scene than one that the president describes on a day-to-day basis when he's mentioning New York City as being, as now labeled today, an anarchist jurisdiction. I mean, I'm pretty sure people here on the ground would be a little confused to find out that their city is under total anarchy right now, but it's pretty unclear how to get removed from such a list once you're on it. I'm not sure even if reversing some of the steps that the administration or the Justice Department rather laid out as part of its justification for labeling New York City as such, even if changing some of those things would necessarily change the end result here. The politics of this really seem to be evident. Obviously, the president is targeting these Democrat-run cities and states with all of this. He continues to say he's the law and order president, and this stuff wouldn't be going on if they let him help in there. So really just kind of I don't know if this is going to win him brownie points for the election. I I don't understand all this, but really just setting himself up for more fights with these cities. Look, we're getting closer to election time and the president is looking to bring the fight not only to Joe Biden, but to other Democrats who might be viewed more negatively in public polling than the former vice president is. Now, it would be interesting if he follows through on these threats to essentially withhold or or revoke funds from some of these cities. I mean, I know that in New York, some of that funding could go towards things that would not be politically wise for the president to have labeled that he was, you know, responsible for removing those funds and defunding elements of law enforcement or public safety or, or anything else around here that could be a bad look, you know, right before the election. Alan Smith, political reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. We filled two big recycling containers, about 100 gallons of space altogether. And that's just one person ordering. Obviously, you know, a food critic can over order so they can sample a range of a menu. But in this case, you know, I could have been like a family of two or a family of four, right? Joining us right now is Tom Sietzema. Food critic for The Washington Post. Tom, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. In a normal year, you'd be commenting, I would think, on the food and presentation within the confines of a restaurant. But now we get to talk about to-go containers and their unintended trash consequences. Let me start with this. Environmental implications aside, what has been the trash pileup consequence for you? Well, as a food critic, I generally eat out at least 10 meals a week. So I'm bringing all these containers into my home now, right? And over the summer, I just said, I'm going to start collecting these and see how much this all adds up to. So for three weeks earlier this summer, I collected packaging from about 30 different takeout orders. And I was shocked by what I got at the end of three weeks. It filled two big recycling containers, about 100 gallons of space altogether. And that's just one person ordering. Obviously, you know, a food critic can over-order so they can sample a range of a menu. But in this case, you know, I could have been like a family of two or a family of four, right? And just shocking. We spread it out on my backyard and took a photograph of it. And, oh, boy, did I feel guilty. 
Why did you feel guilty? Because just the trash piling up itself or were you thinking about environmental conditions or what have you? Like a lot of people, I do try to be a good steward. I think I'm, I do a good job of recycling in, in my in personal life and certainly my professional life. You know, I'm always sending leftovers home with friends and things like that. But in this case, I think, uh, as a lot of experts told me too, people were thinking safety and health first. And a lot of us, or many of us, were not prepared to cook up to 21 meals a week for ourselves at home, right? So takeout from restaurants has been a real lifeline. We've also been supporting restaurants that way too especially in larger urban areas like Washington, L.A., New York. You know, there's this huge spike in takeout. And I wanted to be a good steward, but I wanted to also show myself, like, this is how much trash you're taking in just through a restaurant and is going out the back door. And, again, it really overwhelmed me when I saw the amount just spread out on my back lawn. I would argue you are an exceptional case if only because you are having to and intentionally eat out every single meal as opposed to some families who will be cooking some of those meals. But let's get down to the nitty gritty. How do you recommend going about minimizing the amount of trash that you are creating through these takeout boxes and containers? I'm starting this Just Say No campaign reimagined for 2020 and beyond. I think we all need to ask ourselves questions, first of all. Do we really need napkins, utensils, condiments? Oftentimes, that signals a no for me, right? So I think just like these little modest measures certainly add up. There's often an option when you're ordering from the delivery apps or from the restaurants themselves to decline plastic and other utensils if you don't want them. I think it's important to ask restaurants, too, what kind of material they're using. Obviously, you don't want to do this at prime time, but make inquiries and let restaurants know that this matters to you because only with that sort of feedback can we affect change or can restaurants change what they do. You know, if enough people get on board and call and ask uh, questions, obviously, initially, of course, it was very difficult for restaurants. A lot of places were not prepared for the volume of takeout that they got, right? And they had to scramble to just get any kind of takeout packaging they could. Well, now, seven months into the pandemic, and things have calmed down somewhat, and people have had a little time to investigate packaging solutions. And I think this is an ideal time for restaurants to change if, in fact, they want to. I think it's also really important to remember to use the fewest resources possible. Maybe order several meals that might for a few days, or do a group order with neighbors or people who have similar tastes as you. The whole point is to get packaging that is recyclable or compostable and to do it with as little energy as possible. And let restaurants know you want that option again. He is Tom Sietzema, food critic and now trash critic for The Washington Post. I don't think you intended to get that added onto your resume, but it's now there. <laughs> Tom, I'll thank you. take it. I'll take it. Tom, thank you for your time today. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.